Welcome to the latest episode of Women Rabbis Talk, a show where women rabbis talk to other women rabbis about being women rabbis. I'm one of your hosts, Rabbi Marcy Bellows, and with me is our other host, Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. And we are so overjoyed to be with you today. We are going to start with our segment what are we thinking about? And we have some really interesting stuff we've been talking about. And so Emma is going to get us started. I came across a really cool account on Instagram, on my Instagram feed, and it felt very relevant to our podcast. I think it's at the angry rabbi. I don't know who she is, but she has dedicated her Instagram feed to teaching Jewish texts and working through wisdom relating to anger. She's sort of promoting it as her own personal journey with anger and inviting other people to learn along with her through the lens of Jewish text and tradition. And she seems to be focusing a lot on sort of separating out anger management from righteous anger, sort of when do we need to lean into our anger and when do we need to lean out of it? In addition to it just being kind of a cool, I don't know, post in my feed, yes. So it brought up for me this theme that we talk about on the podcast and that I'd love for us to explore a little bit more right now of how rabbis and women rabbis in particular use use our lived experience and our own personal struggles in productive, healthy ways in our rabbinates, or maybe not. Are there are there healthier ways to do that? Are there less healthier ways to do that? You know, this this Instagram account is anonymous. I, you know, it's it's whichever rabbi is working through their anger didn't want that to be associated with their their name and their actual identity, but still is being open about being a rabbi and and teaching Jewish texts in this way. So just kind of uh, struck me as, as interesting and as something worth talking about together. So I wondered what you think about it. It sounds very rogue shul where it's expressing some feelings that we as Jewish professionals don't often get to express under our own names, but here's an opportunity to say I'm a rabbi and I have a lot of anger and here's you know and 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 not only that but they're valid because we have been experiencing anger for millennia and here's here's how I can prove it the person who's doing it must be very brave what a wonderful way to express those deep feelings yeah and what do you think about this question Marcy of of sort of healthy versus not healthy ways where where rabbis take their lived experience and their struggles in life and sort of bring them into their rabbinate. Can we think of, of other ways that rabbis are doing this healthy and not healthy ways? I think any, <laughs> I think when we try not to bring certain things into our rabbinates, they will rear themselves up and appear in unhealthy anyway. ways, right? They will, yeah, they will appear anyway. 
and then often in very unhealthy ways. Mm. The healthy way to respond to anger, and I can only speak for myself, is that I learned that I could not feel anger growing up and that I should not feel anger. And therefore I developed panic uh, disorder for a very long time until I learned that my panic was actually my anger coming out in its own way. That anytime I had panic, actually like 99% of the time, it was anger that I wasn't acknowledging. And so I had to get to the point where like, oh, wait, I'm feeling panic. What am I actually angry about? You know, like I had to get quickly to that point. Uh, Also get to a point where in my work, I could feel comfortable being assertive and that that was okay. It does. So if I was feeling anger about something, how can I address it in being assertive so that I'm not being mousy and totally negating it? And I'm also not letting it get to aggression. Not that I mm. feel like I ever would necessarily, but what if I did? What if I did explode just because something became so huge? Uh, so I don't know. What about you? What do you think? I think this is in some ways a different version of sort of starting are starting the rabbinic sermon with a personal anecdote, right? That, that, that there have always been ways in which rabbis have brought their lived experience into their teaching. And, and, and we, we can look back in the Talmud also, and there's, there's tons of stories, you know, in, in our rabbinic texts about, you know, where the, where the rabbis are using their own lived experience to teach their students. And, and also in the Talmud, healthy and unhealthy ways, right? There's like the, the story of the the rabbi and his wife and they're in bed together and the students are under the, the bed and they, is that the, this too is Torah text, yep, right? Sure so, is. so, you know, that's maybe not the healthiest way to share our lived experience with our students. But, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that there have always been ways in which rabbis use their life and their own learning and their own struggles to teach Torah and to teach to bring together Jewish wisdom and life and make life meaningful through the lens of Jewish wisdom. Yeah. And this just feels like a contemporary version of that, you know, and, and it's, you know, we've talked about before, you know, the, the give the sermon you need to hear wisdom and the, if you're struggling with it, then someone in your community is also struggling with it. And this just feels like a way to respond to that with, with, complete honesty like with the anonymity that social media can provide us that that you can't necessarily get up and give a sermon that says I am struggling with anger management and I'm your rabbi but you can create an Instagram account to say I'm a rabbi who's learning how to control my anger and I'm finding Jewish texts really helpful and maybe they can help you too wow that's really neat. I've got to check out that Instagram account. That sounds really fascinating. And thank yeah, you for bringing so it to our attention. Shout out to the angry rabbi, whoever you are. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Hit us up. We can uh, find a way to cover up your voice and do an interview <laughs> with you. We'll figure it out. Come on the podcast. We'll see if we, we have we that technology. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep your secret. <laughs> <laughs> Just like we wanted to do with Rogue Shul before they outed themselves. <laughs> Maybe one day the angry rabbi will be ready to reveal herself and she'll come on the podcast. Yeah. And it's interesting that you're saying herself. Have there been things that this Instagrammer has said that 
make it seem like it's a female? Well, the the profile picture is of a woman. Um, I, di- I don't recognize her, so I don't think it's actually what she looks like. But although I, there are many women rabbis out there that I've never seen before, so who knows? But anyway, the profile picture is of a woman. But it, um, it doesn't strongly, it, I don't think it specifically identifies that it is a woman. I'm just basing it off of her. Sure. Mm. And also that it tends to be women, I believe, who have more anger issues or, or issues expressing anger than men do typically. Is it that women have more issues expressing anger or that society is less forgiving of women when they express their anger? Yes and yes. Though I have to say my son is already... I got I to say, Marcy, I'm angry about that. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, But somehow Spencer's getting the message that it's not okay to be angry. And I have to keep saying, no, no, it's okay. You can be angry at mommy and daddy and it's okay. We can handle it. No, no, I'm happy. And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's okay. You can be angry. And so I don't, I'm not exactly sure where he got that message from. And we're working right. on it. It's a, Right. It's about he- finding healthy ways to express and share our anger, not, not feeling our anger. Right. The world is not going to explode if you are angry. We're going to figure it all out together. This has been really awesome. And I know I can't wait now to speak to our very special guest today coming up next. Hey, y'all, it's Marcy, and I am excited to tell you all about the new merch that we have available for you to buy to support us as we work to make our show more accessible and inclusive. We want to create transcripts as well as closed caption videos of all of our episodes. And so to support us, you can go and check out all of our really awesome and cute merch at bonfire.com slash women dash rabbis dash talk dash swag and check it out and support us now thanks we are incredibly privileged today to welcome rabbi sandra cohen who will be speaking to us today about such a critical human issue and rabbinical issue, and we just can't wait to hear more about it. But first, uh, Rabbi Sandra Cohen, what would you like us to call you during our time together today, and why, and what are your preferred pronouns? We are all colleagues here, and so please call me Sandy, and my preferred pronouns are she and her. I'll just note briefly, I am now a Jew in the pew. I haven't been a congregational rabbi for 20 years or something like that. Professionally, I like to be Rabbi Cohen, and it's an interesting balance when you're a congregant. That's true. Yes. What do you want people to call you when you're not in a practicing role? How do you navigate that? Well, I kind of suggest Rabbi Cohen on a regular basis. Then I cringe when they call me Rabbi Sandy because that's not a a term that I like. So, you know, you kind of walk that bridge, right? You want to be friendly, but not, you know, both. So it's an interest. it's its own show all by itself. What are women rabbis called and why? It's true. And that's why we ask it every time because everyone has such personal answers and responses to it. So thank you. Um, so in terms of your own rabbinic journey, how and why did you choose to become a rabbi? My very first 
class that I ever took in college was introduce, Introduction to Hebrew Bible. And on my very first midterm, which I shouldn't say I did really well on, and my professor wrote at the bottom, have you ever considered going into religious studies or becoming a rabbi? And that honest to goodness changed my path. I started studying religious studies and I got very active in my home synagogue when I was in high school and then when I was in college, especially. My parents moved away, but I was still in the Twin Cities. And slowly I discovered that rather than doing the academic work of religious studies, I wanted to be able to involve with other people. And so being a rabbi lets me being a scholar and a pastor simultaneously. Beautiful point. Yeah, you can actually share that knowledge and share your passion for Judaism and do the pastoral work as well. So what are some of the positions that you've held uh, prior to becoming a proud Jew in the pew? <laughs> My husband and I moved out to Denver almost 28 years now for an assistant rabbi position for me right out of school. Then I was the rabbi, I had a baby, and I was the rabbi of a small reformed congregation, Temple Micah, here in Denver for four, four, well, technically six years, but four and a half years. And then I had a major stroke in my early 30s, and it became quite clear that I could not do the work of a congregational rabbi, that I was left with chronic fatigue and chronic migraines and stuff. And so over the course of the past 20 years, I've started doing a lot of writing. I teach in a variety of contexts. I teach mostly rabbinic texts. What is it? So I would say like six years ago or so, I decided that um, my own experience in the world of mental illness and mental health might be something that I could share and be useful to other people. I guess what I would say is that when you're not a congregational rabbi, it's a whole lot easier to talk about your issues because I have nothing to lose. Whereas for congregational rabbis, it's a very difficult process of what you share and what you don't share. It's so interesting. We were just speaking about this earlier in the episode in relation to anger management and the broader question of what things can rabbis share appropriately and how do rabbis share from their lived experience and from their own challenges in a way that is healthy and productive and useful for their students and their community, but also in a way that's appropriate. And I think you're you're highlighting that that might be a bigger challenge for congregational rabbis than for other rabbis, but maybe also a challenge for all rabbis. I mean, when I go and speak someplace about my own, about it, like for a scholar residence weekend or a one-time sermon or whatever, I talk about the mitzvot and the midot involved in really opening ourselves to those who have mental illness and to their families. But I also tell parts of my own story. And what I like to say is I go to shul, I get up on the bima, I take up off my clothing, tell my story, put my clothing back on. And then in the kiddush or the onig afterwards, half the congregation comes up to me and says, my father, my sister, my child, myself, has this, this, this issue. As a, as a friend of mine put it, it's like coming out um, when you say you have a mental illness. And I have a debilitating mental illness, but I'm not going to lose my job because I come out with it. And so that gives me the ability to do that, to write about it and talk about it and be really upfront with my own stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's so powerful when rabbis are able to be vulnerable in that way. And, and when you talk about taking off your clothes, of course, 
you know, our, our listeners can't see the face, so it's a metaphor, uh, just for anyone who wasn't sure. Uh, <laughs> but we, we do sometimes really put ourselves out there as rabbis and, and share in, in vulnerable ways. And often those are, are what lead to some of the most powerful conversations with people because they do come and say, you know, you were talking about me, you were talking about my family, you were talking about my experience, and thank you. Yeah. If we could now, and what I always think is, this is a really good start, so now we need to help congregations or other organizations help all those people talk to each other and be with each other instead of everybody hiding in their own little shameful space. So we've sort of jumped right into it. We maybe just for our listeners should pull back for a second and just ask you to share a little bit about sort of the specifics of your work around mental health. Um, what does that look like? Um, who do you work with? And um, and if you feel comfortable sharing a little bit more about your own story and, and how, how you were led to that work, we would love to hear and I'm sure our listeners would appreciate to hear. So I come to working in mental health as someone who's been in and out of therapy, mostly in for like 40 years. Um, I like to think I'm getting somewhere. I have a biologically based mental illness. I have bipolar disorder with, with treatment resistant depression. And I have tried everything in the book. So I'm always on the cutting edge in terms of treatment. I think what happened for me on my, my career line is, is that as it became clear to me over the course of many years that I really wanted to figure out some way of doing something that had meaning in the world. And I, and I was not going to be a congregational rabbi and I'm doing some teaching, but it wasn't whatever. And I thought I can tell my story. And in telling my story, as I said, I can talk about the Jewish values that will help. So when I do, for example, come, when I preach, I'll talk about, as I said, I kind of wove, weave my own story into kind of a discussion. What are core Jewish mitzvot or mitzvot around mental health? Bikor cholim, right? Visiting the sick, which is not just for cancer patients. It's for people who have mental illnesses. And that can range from anything from showing up with, you know, with a kugel and doing laundry to simply know, noticing somebody who's usually in shul and who isn't there. And you should track them down and see if they're okay. Welcoming the stranger, right? Um, and I talk about that. That's like virtue signaling. When you have cards from NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, or other mental health resources, when you have those in the bathrooms or sitting in the lobby, when you have a mental health guide on your synagogue webpage, not only does that give people access to resources, it also tells people, oh, they know about mental illness here in this congregation. I must be safe here. And then I'll talk about giving me chasadim, deeds of loving kindness. How can we kind of be there? Derek Eretz walking with each other. I'll talk about all of that. And then when if I do a workshop, we'll kind of do a more in-depth, some study around each of those things and some practical action items around each of those things. And I also teach a class sometimes that's pretty much called Bikor Holim, visiting the sick, what to say and what not to say. At the beginning, to ask people, what's the most inappropriate thing anybody has ever said to you when you were sick is a really fun exercise because <laughs> people don't know. And so 
So that's what I do. And that's how I kind of came to it was slowly telling my own story and then figuring out what are the Jewish aspects that can be useful here. The other thing I'll note is actually, I just got elected to the NAMI Colorado board. It's very exciting. And they have a faith net, which is a really good good branch of NAMI to help reach out to synagogues, churches, mosques, temples, whatever. And so I'm excited to be joining the board and bringing my own experience there and bringing kind of my religion outreach there. Wow, what an honor. Mazel tov. Well, thank you. It's very exciting. And they're lucky to have you and your wisdom and experience, I'm sure. I hope so. I told my friend who nominated me, I said, sometimes I have good periods and sometimes I have bad periods. And he said, you know, at NAMI, we believe in putting people who have lived experience in positions of power. Mm. Okay, then. Right. You would hope of all places that would be understanding Exactly. want to see you, you know, at your realness, you know, in your realness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, you say on your website that you appreciate opening the door to the discussion of mental illness in the Jewish community. And so and, you know, you were talking about some of the midot, some of the qualities that can help us do this. What, What are some of the other best ways to help open the door to the discussion? Well, the first thing is talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, right? Where we were 30 years ago with cancer, 35, right? When nobody talked about cancer, nobody talked about, right, the big C. And and now in my synagogue I, I, I attend regularly has posters on the inside of the bathroom stalls reminding women that, right, Jews can be in danger of the BRCA genes, right? That's a long way to go. Every time we do a Mishaberach, we need to say we're talking about physical issues, mental issues, emotional and spiritual ones. And we feel like, well, I said that, so now people know. And I, the metaphor I use is how many times did you teach your child, tell your child, cross, look both ways before you cross the street, before it sinks in? And that's how often we have to mention mental illness. Every service, every program, every, just everywhere in our literature, as I said, on our websites from the BEMA. Mental Health Month is always a good time to do that in, in May, but we can do that at other times too. We did that a few years ago in my synagogue. We also, the, our disabilities commi- um, committee also had us do a mental health piece, asking people to speak about their own experience, asking people to, you know, to listen to those things. And as I and also then doing some of those actual concrete things. Oh, several a couple of years, few years ago, just before the pandemic, and I mean like just before the pandemic, I was hospitalized for a few days on a mental health ward, and I told my husband to you know let a couple of people know. And one young woman whom I've known since she was a bat mitzvah student with me way back, and who I learned with regularly, she came to visit me, and she said I wasn't sure if I should come or not. But it seemed to me that if you broke your leg, I would come visit you. And if we think illness is illness, then I should just come visit you. And I thought, well, that was a wise thing, right? Well, I'll add one more thing. We want to teach that in our religious school as well for a couple of reasons. One is so that when kids are out with mental health issues, their friends can learn how to welcome them back very matter-of-factly or even how to reach out while they're being ill. And also because it's our teenagers know who else is in trouble. 
right? The teenager knows who teenagers know who's throwing up in the bathroom after lunch or who's cutting or who's talking about hurting themselves. Um, and we want to empower our teenagers to know what to do when that happens. How do you help your friend? Wow, that's so important. I imagine that a lot of people are nervous to talk to young people about mental health and not sure, you know, what age to begin educating about mental health and how to do that. Do you have any sort of best practices around that? Well, I mean, we start with little kids just by naming our feelings and that they're normal. But that's the first thing. And here are options. I mean, we do we that with really little kids, right? Oh, you're really angry. And the kid discovers, oh, that's what this feeling is called and that other people have that feeling. I think that we want to train our religious school teachers and our preschool teachers how to notice if there might be a problem and also then how to talk to parents about it because we're, we're so worried about our kids. And religious school teacher or preschool teacher comes up to you and says, I'm worried about your child because X, Y, and Z. So often our response is, no, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. Rather, what we want to be able to do is to say, I'm a little worried about your kid. Here's some resources for you. Here's a book you can read. Here's a therapist you can talk to. Here's a place you can go get your child evaluated. Um, and clergy especially need to have a list of mental health resources and a therapist so that, so that we can refer on, right? Because we can do some pastoral care, but at some point it's beyond us. It's not what we're trained for. And so I have some people who I've seen in pastoral care for a long time, but who at some point, each of them just said, if you want to keep seeing me, you're going to need a therapist as well. So knowing our our limits as caregivers is also really important. Absolutely. Uh, my son has a book called The Frustrating Book, and it just came out uh, by Mo Willems, who does um, all the pigeon books, like the pigeon, uh, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, and um, the, P the Piggy and Gerald books. And it just came out. And the whole point of the book is to explain frustration. And so my son is six. And it's all about a squirrel who goes and wants to buy frustration from his friends. And they keep saying, oh, we had some when we just ran out. And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, we ran out. I'm sorry. We don't have any. What? And so, like, he gets frustrated and, uh -huh. and he's experiencing. And so as you're reading it, you're feeling what he's feeling. And it's helping kids get some of even the more abstract feelings, you know, not just anger and sadness, but no, frustration, but, yeah. you know, and it's hard, I think, for the little ones, but especially boys. I mean, I think that's a big thing, too, is helping boys know that their feelings are valid as well. But that's a whole other ball of wax. <laughs> I grew up in a family where there was a mental illness. We didn't talk about it. It just, I just, it was there. A few years ago, like maybe a couple of years ago, the Disabilities Committee wanted people to talk about at synagogue about a mental illness in their lives. And so they asked me, so among other people, I asked my daughter, she wanted to talk about, called her up. She was in law school at the time. I said to her, would you like to talk or be willing to talk about what it was like growing up in a family where there was mental illness? And there's this very long pause. And she says, it was okay. <laughs> I said, I said, they're going to want more than that. But what I learned from what she had to say, which she spoke beautifully, of course, but that's, I'm not prejudiced. 
She talked about the experience of my stroke when she was four and a half and visiting me in the hospital and how scary that was and like that. And she talked about, she remembers coming and making Shabbos with me in the hospital when she was about 10 and whatever. And what was interesting to me was that she didn't differentiate between when I was in the hospital for a physical illness or when I was in the hospital for a mental illness. So that was good. I let her know I had this thing called depression and that was why sometimes I couldn't do the things we wanted to do together. And she was then able to identify with no shame whatsoever her own mental illness issues. Like she just think it's a normal thing to talk about. And I thought, look at that in the course of a couple of generations, we can change the narrative. Wow, that's really powerful to hear and think about. And, and I'm sure there are listeners out there for whom that is comforting to, to hear. So I'm wondering, in addition to these really important conversations that you're having with, with parents and with kids, when you're speaking as a scholar in residence, what other topics are people wanting to hear in connection to mental illness? What are some of the, the top questions that you're asked? What, what are people longing to know? Well, I mean, I think really people want to know that they're not alone. So when I'll teach a text study about like mental illness in rabbinic literature or in the Bible and rabbinic literature, people find that really, really comforting that the status is there and that, you know, right, that's a shoteh. Somebody who is is not, not competent is the way I like to translate that. And one of the things I like about this issue of the shoteh is that in, I think it's in Hagiga, they talk about how someone who, if you're a shoteh, you're not obligated to anything because you're not competent. But they talk about what makes you a shoteh if you wander around the cemetery at night, if you tear your clothing, whatever. And then they talk about, and then Maimonides talks pretty specifically about too, how, how to know when someone is in a position of being a shote and when they are not. That is to say, it is not a permanent condition. It's a condition that might go up and down. And I mention that because one of the things I think is really important for us to know is that the model we have in the media is, is that somebody gets depressed or has a mental illness, they have a crisis, there's an intervention, they work for a while, then there's a moment with their therapist that something really crucial comes out and lots of tears, and then you get better, right? And then you're, then you're better. In reality, most mental illnesses, not all, but most mental illnesses are work like MS does or lupus on a sine curve, right? It gets, we're in remission, we're having a recurrence. You're in remission, you're having a recurrence. I find it comforting to know that even by rabbinic literature time, they knew that that was true. I think that it's powerful for people to know, for me to know to say, I have a mental illness, but look, I'm still here teaching. I'm, I'm still here preaching and my story matters. And I think we all want to know that our stories matter. That really resonates with me. I've also had times in my life where I've struggled with anxiety and with depression. And I remember how powerful it was to learn about Reb Nachman and that he also might have been someone who had struggles with mental illness um, and, and specifically the kinds of mental illness that, that we're talking about, depression, um, perhaps um, manic episodes, and yet he was, or not even yet, and he was a prolific 
writer and teacher and charismatic leader and has, you know, this, this very renowned, well-respected legacy. And when I was, you know, struggling with, with mental illness um, at times in rabbinical school, it was so reassuring to know that I could still be a rabbi and that, you know, that I could still be a writer and that I could, could tap into some of that pain um, and perhaps um, channel it into into prayer and into meditation and into spirituality in the ways that Reb Nachman did, and, and and knowing that 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 these challenges are embedded in our rabbinic texts, and that there are rabbis uh, who've come before us who've struggled with these things and still been successful rabbis is is just so important. You know, Rav Nachman, what I understand, didn't really say. Right? Don't be afraid. What he said was, we all have a narrow bridge, that you should not make yourself afraid. Sort of like he's kind of saying, look, yes, we all have our own journey. We're not all going across that narrow bridge together, right? Each of us has narrow bridges to cross. And it's almost as though he says, it's okay to be afraid, but don't make it worse than it has to be, right? Because to say, yes, of course you're frightened. It's a narrow bridge. That would, that would be a good response. But you don't need to spook yourself. You can say it to yourself. I can do, I'm afraid and I can do this. Right. It's, it's that, some of that sort of self-soothing mantra kind of stuff that, that folks who've had anxiety and have had to learn how to cope with anxiety, you know, know sometimes you have to to talk to yourself and talk yourself down and calm yourself down. And, you know, there's all, all, all sorts of great strategies now, but it, but it almost that, you know, that's what I hear in Reb Nachman in, in, in that, you know, not to make yourself afraid to be able to say to yourself, I'm okay. I'm okay. One step at a time. I can do this, you know, and, and that he was, was trying to teach in his own way that sometimes we have to, reassure ourselves to get across the bridge. You know, and of, of, of all the things that I do in yoga, shavasana, right, the, the last pose, and, and pranayama, the breathing stuff is really hard for me because of anxiety stuff. <clears throat> and I've learned over the years, I breathe in kol hanishama, and then I breathe out to hallelujah, then I breathe in hallelujah, and I out breathe out, yeah. Having that to say in my brain helps me from monkey brain, right? When you're just kind of all over the place. I'm like, I can't apparently just pay attention to my breathing, but I can work on paying attention to my breathing with the idea that, you know what, someday I'll do it better. Today, this is what I'm doing. I love that. So what can congregations do to support people in their communities who are struggling with mental health? And what can they do to support their rabbis who might be struggling with mental health. And we want to remember that we're working with with people with mental health issues and their family members who, so when you reach out to someone who has a mental illness or family member, I'll say a couple things. One is I, I like the image of when you go visit a new baby, a newborn or a little one, we don't have any expectation that you're gonna go and uh, that baby's now going to start sleeping through the night, right? No, you're going to go, you're going to hold the baby so mom can take a 20-minute shower and you're going to put in a load of laundry. Dad can take a bath. You bring over Kugel. 
you tell them how cute the baby is and then you leave. So when we reach out to people with mental illnesses and we reach out to their families, if we can remind ourselves that it's okay to set limits, how long I wanna be there, how often I wanna be there, and to remind ourselves that we haven't failed if we didn't fix it, that's also a good thing, right? You were there while you were there. And just by the way, as a liberal rabbi, I will note, we are very reluctant liberal rabbis to offer to pray with someone, but it's really powerful. You can sing Debbie Friedman's Mishaberach with them. You can just say a Mishaberach. You can read a Psalm together. You can make up a prayer. I think it's always a good idea to, to end a visit by saying to someone, would you like us to do a prayer? And the person can say, no, and that's fine. And if they say yes, then you can bring, write that Jewish piece into it. And that kind of connects you with God. We have the up and down between us and God and the side to side, peer to peer. And those both relationships are really important. And as I said, the more resources we could have out, the better we are. It's such a good place to begin for congregations is having resource lists of what you can do if you need help. I think that rabbis also need to know that. So in Denver, we now have a rabbinic support group that meets once a month with a, uh, with a, psych with a psych psychologist to talk about what we're doing and how things are going personally, professionally, whatever. I know um, my best friend is an Episcopal priest, just because. And I know she has a clergy group that she has been meeting with like 20 years, I think, since she was ordained and been there. Meeting with each other and talking with each other is really important because in some ways, we're the only ones who really understand what it's like. A rabbi of any kind, much less a congregational rabbi. And so we can really hear each other. I think also that rabbis, I think rabbi, all rabbis at some point, whether in rabbi school, rabbinical school or in general, should be in therapy at some point. Maybe not always, or maybe in and out, but so you have someone to talk to and to help you get perspective and to help you take care of yourself. I was recommended to my therapist that I have here in Colorado when my baby was about five months old. And every year my gynecologist who made the recommendation says, so are you still seeing? And I'm like, I'm still seeing, right? That's what I, that's what I need to maintain my mental health. And I think rabbi shouldn't be afraid of it. I did have someone say to me once that she would never see a rabbi and a, a therapist in the Jewish community because they talk to each other. I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> um, Right? When I see my therapist in synagogue or walking in the park, she doesn't acknowledge me. And if I say hi to her, she says, hi, Rabbi Cohen, how are you? So I, we need to not be afraid to take care of ourselves in as many ways as possible. Because it's hard being a rabbi. Yeah. Um, Marcy and I are both uh, big fans and advocates of therapy. We've talked about it on the podcast several times. Earlier today, I was telling Marcy about amazing advice that I got from my therapist to go and study something that I'm that I'm struggling with. And, and my therapist said, well, you're a rabbi. Go study the Jewish texts on that thing and see if that helps. You know, it's it's really important. And I think, yeah, you know, for some rabbis, they, they might want to have a they might feel that they particularly want a Jewish therapist who can relate to what they do in a in a sort of more 
knowing way. Um, and for some rabbis, they might not want that. I once had a uh, fabulous therapist who was the wife of a rabbi, and that was a great oh, fit. Yeah. I had, when I started seeing the psychiatrist I see now, oh, ten, 10, 15 years ago. Anyway, the first year when he wasn't Jewish and the first year when Passover came around, and I had met, was meeting with him for med check, but I was saying how anxious I was because I had all this stuff to do. I had to work, and he's looking at me like I'm a crazy person. And I and I stopped and I said, "Oh, I said this is not me. This is what many many talk to my therapist. She's Jewish. She does this too with the cleaning and the whatever. I'm like, this is not me being weird. This is just something you don't know about, and, and which is fine too. And over the years, he's asked me about this or that. Jewish questions, and I'm always happy to be of resource, right? A funny thing is one of my therapists a long time ago was also the wife of a rabbi. And so that's, <laughs> um, I didn't see her very long just because I wound up, it was in high school and I wound up going to college. But the therapist I've been seeing now for, oh my gosh, probably almost 15 to 20 years is a Jungian psychoanalyst. And what I love is the embrace of the spiritual and the, um, the validation of the spirit. And so, you know, even though my therapist is not Jewish, the spiritual world is acknowledged and embraced and is an important part of the work we do together. And that's why I, you know, uh, my therapist is not allowed to ever uh, retire. So there. I know I make my therapist retire. I'm like, I want you to promise me you're not going to die. And then, she reality, and then she reality checks with me. I'm like, the fact that you were a decade older than me when I started seeing you was not an issue, but I can see that it's going to be an issue. <laughs> been such an inspirational conversation. Uh, Sandy, before we move into the next segment, is there anything else you want to tell us um, or that you think our listeners need to know about this topic? No, you just need to be able to tell yourself it's okay. And whether you're a rabbi or a congregant or whatever, you're not alone. You don't need to be alone. Go to your rabbi. If you're a rabbi, go to your rabbi's rabbi. Use other places use their right so nami national alliance on mental illness nami has a faith net branch that reaches out we should note by the way the national suicide hotline has been changed to 988 and it will hook you up with resources in your area code so if your area code is off we're working on that and the other thing i guess i would say is that the united church UCC, the United Church of Christ, which is a liberal Protestant denomination, has a mental health network, and they encourage congregations to create wise covenants. And this has been happening in Colorado, two congregations up at Boulder, and then my congregation here in, in Denver is the third one. A wise covenant, it's, and I translated it into Hebrew, so a breach consists of welcoming, inclusive, supportive, and engaged. So for their their four basic prongs are right? Like, like Abraham and Sarah welcoming, um, including people with mental health challenges in their families. And I call that derech eretz, walking with one another. Supporting people with mental health challenges and their loved ones, which is the mitzvah of bikor cholim, of, of visiting the sick, caring for the sick. And then we engage with other organizations and communities in the work of 
mental health awareness and support, and I called that Tikkun Olam. Um, and so um, we have that on our website, Road of Shalom Denver. We have that. Uh, we have a mental health tab on our website that has our covenant, and then also has a variety of mental health resources. Everything from 988 suicide line to the Trevor helpline for LGBTQ um, teens and like that. Um, so there's lots of cool stuff there. You said that's on my synagogue one, or you're welcome to go to my webpage, which is www.rabbisandracohen.org. Sorry, I'm a .org. Um, and lots of good resources there, too. Thank you so much. Uh, just amazing speaking with you, Sandy, really. Oh, um, you're so kind. Uh, I mean, it's from the bottom of my heart. I just, this is so uplifting and... Um, just feels good to, as you're saying, I mean, the whole point of what you're talking about is just it feels good to talk about it. Maybe this is related, but I don't know. You, Who knows what direction you're going to take this. But every episode we have an Ask the Rabbi segment. And yep. um, we have a question from at Tessa Quayle. And their question is, what's the best advice a mentor ever gave you? I have so many answers to that, but I'm going to go with wait. So I've done some supervision work over the years with Rabbi Ellen Lewis, who's amazing and everyone should know and love. And she taught me wait. When you're sitting in a pastoral care setting with somebody else, you say to yourself, why am I talking? Which is a wonderful way to make sure that what I'm doing is creating a holding environment for this person and their experience, their feelings, their concerns, and not pushing my own agenda. So I like that a lot. So it's an acronym. It's an acronym. It's magical. <laughs> Why am yeah. I talking? I feel like I need to wait now and let that sink in for everybody. Everybody just take a beat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, Marcy, what uh, I'm curious to hear your answer. What's the best advice a mentor ever gave you? I, it's not an actual piece of advice as much as it was a role modeling. And I know I've mentioned this before, um, but Rabbi Melinda Pinkin, who is just so amazing, just role modeled to me that you can be real when you're a rabbi and you don't have to be some kind of fake uh, <laughs> version of yourself that's up on a pedestal, that's up on a very high pulpit, totally perfect. But instead, you can be silly and you can be um, accessible. You can be you. And that's part of what your own superpowers are going to be as a rabbi. And here we are on a podcast where we are our very real selves. Very <laughs> real. Words at all. all. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Emma? Yeah, I don't know if I've, I feel like I've probably shared this on the podcast before. So listeners, forgive me if this is a repeat. But when I was a rabbinical student and we were assigned mentors, I had a fabulous woman rabbi mentor. This was Rabbi Liza Stern, who is the rabbi of Congregation Eitz Chaim in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she said, I was telling her about, I, I had just made the transition from cantorial school to rabbinical school. Ooh. And we were talking about rabbis that 
that I admire and what kind of rabbi I might want to be. And I was talking about not wanting to be at that time. I, I didn't imagine that I would um, enjoy being a congregational rabbi, which of course now I love. She asked me about, you know, what, what congregational rabbis do I, you know, do I love what I want to be like, or I can't remember exactly how she asked it, but I was describing some of my favorite congregational rabbis. And, and I was saying, but I'm not like that. I don't have that characteristic. I don't do, you know, I, I can't do that the way they do that. I'm not charismatic in that way or, you know, whatever it was. And she said, you know, Emma, you don't have to be that rabbi. And it was, it was just such a, a profound moment of relief. And um, it, it felt like a door opened to all these possibilities of, of oh, I can be my version of a rabbi and what does that look like and that's an exciting you know and and um and anytime i get rabbi envy anytime i'm looking at another rabbi and thinking about like wow they do that so well and i don't do that as well as they do that which i'm sure we all have those moments i'm taking off my clothes and telling you about them when when i have those rabbi envy <laughs> mercy's laughing at me when i have those rabbi envy moments I hear her voice saying to me, you don't have to be that rabbi. And, um, and I carry it, I carry it with me. I remember distinctly at a WRN conference before the pandemic. Um, and I came in late cause I was, had slept a little in anyway, but the, the speaker was talking about embracing your gifts, which of course we talk about a lot, but I like what you just said, Emma, what I suddenly had like a light bulb went off and I thought, I know what my gifts are. I can also have things I don't do well, right? Nobody does everything. And that was such a, I thought, I don't just need to embrace my gifts. I need to embrace my, what's the opposite of that? My inadequacy or my lack of talent or my lack of whatever in certain areas as well. What the heck? And it's okay. Yeah. And it's going to need to be okay because it's not realistic to think you're going to be good at everything you do. Yeah, and often congregations want us to be good at every single part of what a rabbi should be in their eyes. But we have limits. And we don't, we have talents and we have things that we're not so good at. Yep. Yep. Great point. And Emma, that's so beautiful. You don't, it's a beautiful you don't have to be that rabbi. I also want to say that I'm, I'm having some slight rabbi envy because... We did not have mentors when I was in rabbi school. So that's a really a, a step up. I have to say that as the child of a rabbi, I was oh. deeply resistant to the idea of rabbinic mentors. And I felt deeply oppressed by the college and later by the CCAR that forced me to have a rabbinic mentor in my first year as a rabbi. You had to sign an agreement before you were ordained. I don't know if they do this anymore. I hope they do. But you had to you had to agree to become a member of the CCAR out of HUC. You had to agree to have one year of being mentored by another CCAR rabbi. And I fought it tooth and nail. I spent the first like three sessions with my CCAR mentor telling her why I didn't need her. And then she finally told me why I needed her. <laughs> gave me a few reality checks. She was a little sharp with me. It was very helpful. That was Rosalind Gold. Thank you, Rosalind. Uh, and when I look back, I'm so appreciative, you know, that the, that the college forced me to have a rabbinic mentor and that the CCAR forced me to have a rabbinic mentor. And I hope that they are forcing all of the students to keep doing that 
Marcy says three. Three years. Now it's three, three, three years, years you have to be mentored. Even better. Yeah, it's the um, last year of school and then the first two years of your rabbinate to be a member yeah, of the CCR. Maybe that's, maybe that's what I had to do too, but but I, I really remember, I think, that first year because I was fighting it. And um, <laughs> yeah. I was privileged to just a couple of years ago, really like exactly when the pandemic broke out, like from March 2020 to March 2021, to have a mentor uh, at through a program that uh, the Wexner Foundation runs for its alumni. Um, and I was privileged to be part of that. That I had a one-year mentor kind of mentoring me and pushing me to do more writing and and trying to put it together. And uh, it's not going well, but it was a really good experience and he's still out there for me. And I only mention that because, right, I, that's, so I, I have, found for myself a mentor when I had been in the rabbinate for 25 years already, right? A mentor is a, or a coach is always a good thing. Yeah. And those are also people we can really lean on around mental illness and yeah. Also. Yeah. Moving into questionnaire Maher. Yay. This is rapid fire. So it'll be short answers and whatever comes to mind. You can also pass if you, you feel okay. stuck. Okay. Um, Sandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Sandy, who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? Rabbi Marcy Zimmerman, Temple Israel, Minneapolis. She arrived, I think, when I was beginning rabbi school. She was a great mentor for me. Um, I will just note, by the way, that I used to babysit for her first baby when she had that first baby and then a few years ago that first baby went to rabbinical school and was a Wexner fellow like 29 years afterwards and that was a bizarre thing too I mean it's wonderful but yeah she was great she was amazing and she's still the senior rabbi there she's amazing fabulous and tell us about another Jew another woman that inspires you it can be Jewish or otherwise I went with the Jewish. I'm going to call out to Rabbi Julie Schwartz, who um, runs the CPE program and started the CPE program in Cincinnati. She was a she was a mentor to me. She accepted me into her house and her home. Used to babysit for her as well. She used to invite me for Shabbos, um, and she um, and she had she was in the Navy for a while, so she was a pioneer just in so many contexts, and she was you know, one of the first female faculty at HUC in Cincinnati. So mm. she was great for my rabbinate. When I went back this past March in 2022 to get my, belatedly get my DD, um, it was just amazing to see her. Wow. Julie Schwartz, if you're listening and you want to be on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is, or women rabbis are? Being a woman rabbi is a blessing and a privilege. It's an honor to have people invite me into their lives and to witness their lives, to listen to them and witness amazing, courageous things that people do. So that's my short answer. A slightly different answer is people wouldn't believe that women rabbis still have people commenting on their clothing, right? 
um, which is not the, exactly the question, but that is what popped into my head was, and yet they still want to know what I'm wearing. It's true. It's it's perfect, and it is the next the next question. It was, what do you think would su would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? So I think you've answered it. Well so, done. Still commenting on our clothing, indeed, <laughs> and our weight, and our hair, our and our jewelry, and our makeup, and everything, uh -huh. and our shoes, and all the things. Sandy, do you have a favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? I go back to the classics and Asher Lev. I'm such a huge Chaim Potok fan. Um, so, um, and I, yeah, I, I go back and reread his stuff on a regular basis. I just find it very comforting. Oh, um, and I haven't read those books in so long. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I need to go dust those off and yeah. give them a note. Thank you. A Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life? I'm a big believer in when you do Yom Kippur, you should just pick one thing to work on every year and not all of the things, because if I work on all of the things, none of them get done. So for the past few years, I've been working on Dan Lachat that we should judge all people favorably. I am trying now to move into the next thing, which is life is not a competition. Oh, yeah. Good. You don't have to be that rabbi. You don't have to be that rabbi. And finally, Sandy, what are you thinking about these days? It's a good question. I'm thinking a lot about, probably I'm thinking about personally, how, what do I want to write about next? What do I have? What do I still have to say? When I'm not doing well emotionally, I feel like I've said everything I had to say and everybody's done with me and I can just go disappear now, which is, which is not a good place to be. That's a not fun place to be. Um, but I am doing a lot of thinking about was how, how can I take my wee little bitty ideas and sermons or whatever and really help synagogues, um, do small things that would make big differences in people's lives. Um, and maybe there's that. I think that, um, we tend to think of, I mean, there are synagogues who get these huge grants and they have social workers and they have the great work, but there's so much stuff we can do that's very small and doable. And I'm, guess I'm thinking about how to get that out there in better ways. Small Changes, Big Impact sounds like a great title of a book. I can't wait to nice. read it. And okay. we will have you back on the podcast. I can definitely tell that there is so much more wisdom that you have that we haven't heard yet. So we will be so happy to have you back again to hear about your next steps when they happen. This was such a privilege to be invited and so much fun to be here with the two of you. Thank you so much. Oh, Sandy, thank you. I I don't know if you recall, but I recall that uh, at one of the WRN conventions in Baltimore, you and I had a chance to have lunch together. And, yeah. and I so enjoyed just talking with you and getting to know you and being so impressed by your your neshama just your soul being a part of like everything you say and do and so getting a chance to talk to you in this way again is just so wonderful and I, there there aren't words thank you for just sharing your neshama again so so beautifully and openly well your kind words are going to carry me through the day and possibly oh. through the week so thank you so much a pleasure so um you gave us your website if people want to find you is there any other way that they should look my, for you my email is rav sj cohen at gmail.com great well and there i am <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you so much for being with us and for your time. Uh, it's really been a privilege. All right, everybody take care. Thank you for listening to Women Rabbis Talk. We'd like to thank Seth Lindenman for tech and sound support. Our music is by Aviva Chernick and Jaffa Road. Women Rabbis Talk is self-edited and self-produced, and we hope to one day have some help with that. If you'd like to support us, please use the links in our episode notes. You can also follow those links to check out all of our awesome swag and merch. Please remember to rate, review, and share, share, share so that others can find this podcast and enjoy it too. Todaraba. today.